death. It's the most inevitable part of life. Some might say it's the only guarantee, but it's also a topic that many people shy away from because it makes us feel uncomfortable, scared or upset. It's often swept under the rug, not acknowledged or talked about until, of course, we come face to face with it ourselves. We hope to end this taboo through a series of interviews with many different people from all over Western Australia. We talk to ordinary people about their views on the grief, loss, love and celebration that is death and dying. This is a conversation on death. My name is Lena Van Hale and I really do want to talk about some perspectives around death and dying in my community as a, as a trans person um, and also as a former sex worker and a sex worker activist. These groups are often misunderstood. Can you tell us a little about that? What is a societal perception and is it always negative? Um, I don't think it's always negative, um, but it is pretty warped. In terms of sex work, there's a lot of propaganda about it. We feed the propaganda ourselves as sex workers as a way to remain safe, right? So we know that sex workers do not use drugs at any higher rate than the general population. We know that um, sex workers often have quite a lot of industry satisfaction, have quite a lot of work satisfaction. We know that sex workers have lower rates of STI than the general population. So all of us wrestle with these myths within ourselves in the same way. You know? So any of us that comes in the industry has to kind of um, pick apart what we thought we were going to see once we were in it. Um, and I think that that's different from a lot of other misunderstood groups because we actively will encourage propaganda as, because it's a way that not only keeps us safe, it's good advertising, right? So it's kind of like a very frustrating, mysterious place to be. I think it's probably safe to say that we're, we're kind of taught to believe that sex work isn't a choice and people engage in it because they have to. Is that correct? That it isn't a choice, that it's dangerous, yeah. And there's a lot of sex workers that are agnostic on those questions as well, I think. I think that probably the average sex worker is like, yes, I choose to do this, I choose to enter the industry. But um, you could say the same for any work, that there's a level where working isn't always a choice for anyone, right? Like, we all go to work and we all you know, sustain ourselves. Um, and so that's a long-standing kind of philosophical argument about how coercive that is. Um, so one way I like to think of it is that try to give people the dignity to define what is coercive in their own life and what they've chosen in their own life. And so I've met plenty of people who've been in the industry but thought that was very coercive. How they entered it, felt they had no choice, and for them that could be very challenging. Um, but I would definitely say they're a minority. The understanding in society is that that's most of us, but I think there's almost very, very few people um, who've actually been sex workers and been in the industry share that. Um, and I'm very sympathetic to those people. I don't believe that any of us can go and tell someone that their experience wasn't coercive or was coercive. And so we find it very offensive both ways. Mm -hmm. I get very angry when people tell me that I was coerced. I'm like, I would know. <laughs> I would know better than you, you know. Mm. And I think that a lot of us share that kind of thing. In, in terms of a society that doesn't really talk about death and dying very much, do you think that your community and the communities with which you work 
do you think that there is enough support for uh, those communities to deal with the kinds of dangers that maybe they they might be prone to that other society members aren't particularly? Um, I'd say that the answer to your question is definitely no. There isn't enough support. But probably what I would like to see is agency a little bit more, right? So at the moment, um, we can't really go to the police very easily. We can, but it's got a pretty unreliable hit rate in terms of whether they turn us away, whether they're willing to talk to us, whether they respect what they're hearing from us, right? Um, we have data on that, you know, we've researched on that. So it's about one in two police reports that we make um, actually get written down, right? They just tell us to leave. But is living with the possibility of violence or a violent death, you know, an ever-present danger? I think I definitely thought it was when I first entered into the industry. Um, and for me, I have the advantage of knowing a lot more sex workers than the average person because I work with sex workers in my day job. I see sex workers every day. I see over 2,000 people a year, you know, um, even if a lot of those are just very brief. I know for sure how rare violence is because of how rarely we hear about it and because of how many people I speak to who are be career sex workers, been in the industry 10, 15, 20 years, five years, whatever, and how frequent bad experiences are for those people. Um, because most people you talk to haven't had one. Most people you meet will not have had a really seriously bad experience under, under where we live, right? And this is obviously very different in different places in the world, but um, we shouldn't expect that, right? We all expect that. We all go in expecting violence and we all go in kind of expecting that we're like taking all these risks. But um, I felt much more at risk working in a bar. I felt much more at risk uh, in all kinds of jobs. I've delivered pizza, I've done hospitality, you know, like, um, and I think that those are all riskier. <laughs> like, realistically they are. We, we see more injuries in those type of work. So um, it's not, but there is a perception, perception that there is. And you could be a sex worker for a really long time believing that. You could be a sex worker for a really long time feeling this ever-present threat of violence that never occurs. The other group that you work with, the trans community, do you think the attitudes have changed within wider society about how to uh, receive or interact with somebody who is different? Um, yeah, I do think so. I do think radically. Or maybe it's not so much like the way that we interact and the way that everyone interacts with us that's changed, but it's just that we just are able to name it now. Um, I feel like yeah. perhaps like um, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, but as a trans person, you'd move through society and no one would be able to name the why you're different. I came out in 2013, which was right at the very beginning of kind of the current wave of understanding and inclusion that we've seen around trans people in society. And we were really dubious back then about whether it would help. <laughs> we were really, like, there was a lot of debate back then about whether visibility um, actually could harm us because we were like, well, before I walked down the street and people would just be like, that's a strange looking person. Now I walk down the street and people are like, that's a trans person, you know? And so having a name for something gives people something to kind of rail against as well. Um, luckily, it hasn't turned out that way, though. I think that definitely we have seen that 
shift very, very positively with that kind of... Um, but we didn't know because it never happened before. You know, we'd never had something like that where a community like mine, which is a rather like maligned community, um, went from being like kind of not even named in society and the average person didn't even know that we existed to being so well known about. And, and what do you think about society's attitudes to, you know, young people, so teenagers, for example, who, who you know, say, I, 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 I don't feel that I am the person that people see on the outside and I want to be able to have, uh, you know, surgery to be the person that I really, really am. I think that there's a lot of like, this is where I think the misinformation thing really comes in really badly because I think that we've done ourselves a bit of a disservice in the way that we've spoken about trans people in kind of reductive ways sometimes Um, because I think that like everyone, regardless of where you sit on the issue and regardless of where you sit on like who trans people are and what we are, like everyone universally just wants the best for young people, right? Um, But... I don't think anyone's got like a really good grasp of what that looks like. Um, for me, and everyone really uses their own experience, right? So, you know, I could talk to any person who's really concerned about the, about young trans people in society, and they're like, well, if that had happened to me, then that would have been harmful. If I'd gone to doctors and they would have made me transition, that would have harmed me. Um, and then we're like, well, people go through puberty and then feel extremely harmed by not being able to have been included and I mean in WA we have five-year waiting list for a young person to be seen so if the average person um, can't get anywhere near I mean we, we, we don't put anyone anywhere near hormones until they're you know 14 15 but what I would love is if the conversation was elevated to the point where no one accused us of operating on young people because that's just not something that happens surgical intervention is not actually on the table for any young people um i always think about it in terms of like because i really agree with someone who would be my like kind of ideological opponent on this that they're very worried that we're going to like put a young person on hormones and make them experience things happening to their body that don't match their internal sense of gender how harmful and damaging that could be for a person. And I'm like, well, that's just what we want to. <laughs> I just don't want anyone to have to go through that experience as well. Um, but, yeah, I think that we're going to have a few more years of this conversation being really charged and not very evidence-based, and it's a bit unfortunate at the moment. We were talking to people about suicide and suicide prevention and, uh, of course, the numbers within the communities that you work with are significantly higher than even the shocking numbers that are that are on the table anyway. Um, why is that? Um, because I think people are very alone. There's a great piece of research a few years ago that showed that for a trans or gender variant young person who has just one person in their life that's inclusive to them, and just one person in their life, be it like at school, be it a friend, be it a parent, be it a doctor, um, who is able to be inclusive of their gender in any way, whether it's just recognising their gender, whether it's using a different name and pronoun in a certain space, um, and just like kind of being there for them and and being able to see them in that gender variance, then it reduces their risk of suicide to significantly, to almost just above the general population, right? So I think that shows that just 
how critically alone people are, um, because if that if the statistics that we do have are made up to such a high level of people who just do not have an area in their life where they're supported in their gender and their experience, and just you know even recognise that their experience is real, then um, I think that's a really serious indictment, right? To see both those stats, because we've known for such a long time the difference in suicidal ideation and, and you know suicidality, um, and to see how much that reduces in young people with just one single person in their life that's accepting of them, I think really shows um, just how much isolation and loneliness is, is driving the rest of those numbers. And what about older people within that cohort? So with older people, it actually seems to be a similar thing because we are coming out in later life too. Uh, and I, I can't quote research for this specifically, but my understanding of suicidality in older trans people is that the most dangerous point for any trans person is when they first come out. And the critical time for anyone is in between someone's come out to people in their life and where they've actually been able to seek help and seek affirmation and seek experimentation and um, start being able to try themselves on their own skin and such. I think there are lots of things that drive it also, that things like poverty, right? Um, but I don't think those are uniquely, like, they kind of line up with the non-trans person in poverty, for example, but uh, all trans people seem to experience this real danger period for emotional harm and suicidality, which is right around when they're um, seeking acceptance in the world and looking around themselves, seeing which of their friends are still okay with them, seeing if their family will still talk to them. Um, I think that that's like the real danger period for anyone. What do you worry about, Lena? Um, I really worry about misinformation, the nuances of that information. I think that it's really challenging for trans people to hear about the statistics related to suicidality over a lifetime. We always hear that, you know, one in two trans people have experienced some level of suicidality over a lifetime. Um, without ever having the context that the vast majority of suicidality for a trans person is immediately after coming out before receiving, um, you know, any type of help, before engaging in help seeking. And so we give people all this fear without giving them, like, any hope, right? And I feel like that's a form of misinformation in itself. Has there been any research done on once people have transitioned whether there is an element of mourning uh, from either family or wider friendship groups, the, I suppose, death of the person they knew and this new person hmm. that is... Uh, talk to me a little bit about that. This is great. I really wanted to talk about this. Oh, good. Um, I don't know if there's any research at all, but we talk about this all the time. People talk about this all the time about like, mourning a person. Um, and a lot of trans people find this really offensive. <laughs> I personally don't mind it so much, but I do understand why people find it really offensive. I think my, a lot of my family did this as well. They were like, oh, we're in a little bit of mourning right now. And yeah. I was kind of like, well, shut up and come back and talk to me when you're done with that. Because I'm here, right? Like, fucking hell. But um, I, I was a bit forceful with my family, right, in that sense. There are some people who are in mourning who it's really painful for the trans person because they're, like, really... 
they're like, well, you're dead to me and I'm not going to talk to you again, right? And I think that's pretty fucked up. <laughs> that's pretty rough to happen to anyone in any situation, with anything that anyone's going through. Um, I think that a lot of the time with like parents particularly, they have this kind of view of where you're going to be in their head, right? And they're like, okay, you know, married by 30, grandkids by 35, you know, and they like have all these things where they've got kind of like a little mental kind of plan planned out for you. And then transitioning, they have to rebuild all of that. And it kind of takes away part of their framework for the world. Um, and I think that children get really pissed off at parents for that. But I mean, it's been like, they've spent decades of their life building up this like kind of internal framework of their expectations of the world around them. You know, and that's, I mean, it's a really powerful thing that like, you know, what you expect to see when you wake up in the morning and having to like fully rearrange your worldview like that, I think is a lot for a lot of parents. I do think it would be good if parents would um, do that work without making their children drag them through it though. I get a bit like, I'm not very good at working with other trans people's parents. I think because my parents are very good. I think because my parents are like very cool people. Um, and my approach is always to parents. I'm like, this is something that's really important for you to do on your own. While, you know, your child's going through the one of the hardest moments they'll ever go through in their life. Like, I think it's really important to kind of sometimes separate those groups a little bit. I don't think that we're really born with like a, this is what gender looks like. Um, but I feel like maybe we are born with a blank slate with gender written on it. And then we fill in whatever it is, right? Like, I feel like um, not many people have no internal sense of gender, even from very, very young. And it seems to be something that like kind of happens, but it gets filled in so differently based on all kinds of things. And so I wonder if like, we're born a blank slate, but it's a blank slate that's labeled. No, like we're born like a collection of blank slates. Have you come across people who have transitioned, who do kind of mourn the identity that was once a portion to them, which they've actively decided to to change. Um, yeah, it depends. I think so. I think a lot of people will have things that they mourn in terms of like, oh, this is going to be very hard for me to do now. Um, I personally don't feel safe doing a lot of travelling anymore. I used to travel a lot, and there's certain places where I would only travel with like people that I trust now. I feel like certain places I necessarily wouldn't travel alone and I never used to think about that as I'll go anywhere you know? and so for me that's very annoying um, but it depends what you relate to your gender right there's some people who will mourn like you know oh I can never do this you know eat this food anymore because they gender it so intensely in their minds and I think that's very funny you know? and people like I can never drink beer again I think you can yeah um <laughs> But I think that we just, that's just, that's just a symptom of how silly some of the things we gender in society are, you know, like we see everything's gendered. Yeah. We have gendered advertising on bread, you know, like on absolutely everything. So, um, and I think a lot of people do that, some people more than others. For a lot of trans people, the experience of coming to terms with themselves is more one of like euphoria and it's the opposite, you know. They're able to lift themselves out of the state of mourning things that they'll never get to experience, be like, no, I can't experience them. So marginalised communities um, often feel that they need to retreat to their own community because nobody else actually understands outside. You know, death and dying within a community that already feels 
pressured is something that reverts then into a private uh, place rather than a public responsibility. Yeah, it can be. I feel like if anyone around us in our communities die, and I'm not talking like specifically the trans community, I'm talking like anyone around us dies, um, we all connect to that in some way. You know, like none of us are neutral on someone around us dying, I think. Um, And I think that in a marginalised community, you have kind of this feeling when someone passes, like like as if we should have um, a unique level of kind of ownership over that. And I don't think anyone does, you know. I feel like that can be very challenging for some people in marginalised communities. Like if we see a sex worker die, we're like, um, it becomes kind of like our business, even if it wasn't. I don't know if that's a great way of explaining it. So is that because there's an element of advocacy that people feel that they have to perform? Yeah, yeah, or counter-advocacy, as may often be the case. Yeah. Um, And definitely in trans communities. Um, And so it feels like all of us, regardless of our intersectional identities and all of our other identities, um, we all have kind of an agency and perspective on dying and when the people around us die. And it's like having that community where someone dies who has that relation to you, um, it almost like gives you permission to start like um, experiencing things and thinking about things in a way that's kind of a little bit taboo if you're not. And so that makes this like just a little extra layer of feeling uncomfortable, I think. The last couple of years with the pandemic... Um, have been difficult for all societies and all cultures and all communities. Do you think that it's had a disproportionate effect on the trans and sex worker community? Definitely on the sex worker community. Um, so on the sex worker community, I don't have to look deep at all to see that it's massively impacted um, because, you know, even just... Even just if it wasn't sex work, if we were just small business owners that are independent business owners, then we're all in our business, right? And um, as a sex worker, the money you make is also the habits you keep and the safety you're able to enforce. If I really need to pay rent, then I might take on and accept that client who makes me uncomfortable. I might stay a week longer and work in a place that I don't feel quite as good at, you know? Um, and so your income and how like secure and regular you're able to work is like one of the biggest indicators of how safe you feel at work because you just enforce yourself, right? And you have more time to think about that stuff. So a global pandemic kind of took all that away from us. Um, and it would have made a lot of people, you know, made a lot of people lose their jobs, made a lot of people lose connection and... Of course, the industry didn't even slow down, but <laughs> a lot of people stopped working anyway. I also think that um, it's kind of like a second pandemic to affect us too. A lot of people don't like, people forget a lot about HIV and HIV is still a pandemic. Um, sex workers in Australia, as my experience, uh, have really, really high levels of kind of self-protection around this stuff. So. We did see, thankfully, the sex worker communities in Australia really band together. People really help each other around a lot of kind of mutual aid projects and 
um, and sex workers managed to not be as affected by actually catching the virus as a lot of other industries and definitely far, far better than what people expected. The stereotype was that we would all catch COVID, right, because we're all kissing people, um, which ended up not being true. It ended up being more important if you're working in a supermarket and you're around 100 people a day than just kissing, you know, five people a week ends up being much less of a risk because it's that infectious. Um, so sex works ended up being quite low risk, but because of the stigma around sex work, sex work was already maligned. Like we already saw sex workers as transmitting virus before the pandemic. So when a global virus came around that's killing people and everyone's just thinking about a virus all day, like people just naturally gravitated to fearing and, you know, uh, excluding and hating sex work a lot more. So we did see a lot of this like stigma stuff happen. In my work, I saw people turned away from shelters, turned away from like your women's shelters, um, turned out of doctors, um, more refused from police. And these are all things that have that always did happen, to be honest, because we don't have um, a good system to protect sex workers. But these all increased, right? Like uh, the percentage rate at which you were able to successfully access help reduced even more over the pandemic. How does that compare to what happened with the other pandemic that you talked about, the HIV and AIDS virus? Something I think is really, really present in a lot of the way that we've responded to COVID um, and that is common to the way that we respond to HIV. Prevention against COVID became this like political fight where it's like you're either like for protecting people against COVID or against it, rather than having any kind of reasonable middle there, right? And with HIV, it was either use a condom or die. Um, and I feel like we kind of have this kind of gap there where we're missing um, the reality of human behavior. I mean, I, I, I probably want stronger health protocols on most things, but I do think that we have some really like not sensible ones as well. You said earlier that HIV and AIDS hasn't gone away. It's still there. It doesn't make the headlines like it used to. Is that dangerous? What's dangerous isn't so much HIV and AIDS specifically. It's probably like, you know, not testing. For me, like, I work in sexual health, so I'll tell anyone, I don't care what you do, test, right? Like, that's the number one. If you catch HIV today, you can expect for it to not shorten your lifespan. That's how far we have come, which is amazing and massive and I think really just incredible. Um, so I'm past where I think it's important for us to talk about HIV as being dangerous, but I think that what we should take from it is that we had these ideas about sex and these ideas about talking about sex and these ideas about sexual health that didn't stand up to a pandemic. Right? The previous pandemic kind of crashed head first into all of our societal ideas about that stuff and it exposed how harmful those ideas were. So, that's, so it's not HIV that's the danger anymore. It's not HIV for us to be scared of. We're talking about things that we're not good at talking about. Do you think that the next generation uh, will be much more comfortable with people uh, intersection talking about you know, intersectionality and and all sorts of 
sexual pro- proclivities because things have already been shaken up? I think the proof's kind of overwhelming, actually, I think. I think the proof's really overwhelming that that is happening, that uh, our, our current generation of young people um, definitely are better than my generation uh, talking about stuff like this. And I think that we were probably better than our parents' generation and so forth. Um, I think it's about information. Maybe it is about inclusivity as well. I didn't know that trans people existed until I was an adult, until I was like quite a few years into being an adult. I never heard of us at all. I had absolutely no clue because that was kind of the average level of conversation about us in society was so low that the information like didn't exist or people who didn't know about us was very hush. The reason I really like talking about HIV, not in that like it's not like um, wasn't a horrible thing for the world to go through and seeing so many people die. But actually, I think that so many of us were lost to the virus, you know. I didn't know for many years, exa- I didn't, couldn't put my finger on why something was a certain way for many years, which is when I came out, I was 23, just into 23, and there were no other trans women kind of like in this generation above me. If I met another trans woman who was much older than me, typically she'd been out for as long as me. So I might meet some, someone who's in their 40s or 50s, but we both came out at the same time. And it took me years to realise like exactly why that is and why there's this big hole in my community specifically of who we still have alive and who is around as role models and elders to people who are coming alive today, right? And, um, and I think that's really amazing. I am like part of the first generation of trans women in Australia who can come out in their 20s and still expect to live into their 50s. The greater our social acceptance and inclusivity is, the more of us are able to come out young and the more of us are able to live our full lives without suffering and without all the suffering that goes along with that. Um, But for the last couple of generations, the younger you came out, the more likely you were to uh, find harm in other ways and most predominantly being the HIV pandemic. It's like, uh, imagine, imagine a world where the last four generations of queer and trans and non-binary people where um, there was no HIV, imagine what like art and culture and politics and what all this would look like with all those role models still in the world who aren't there now. And we have no idea what it would look like. We have no idea. Has social media been a boon or a bust? A boon, yeah, almost exclusively a boon. Just being able to give people the words for the things they're experiencing. You know, to be able to see a role model, you know? They may not be getting direct support from the role model, but they do get the representation. Um, And I think that's huge. I think that's really huge. But I'm a little critical on terms of, I think, how well connected we are over social social media because I think that, like, it doesn't necessarily replace or, like, do a great job of doing um, direct support or in-person community kind of that compared to that kind of community stuff. But I think that the information is enough. Like, I think that's so positive for it to already be good enough, yeah. I'd like to see... Uh, just enough accurate information that we don't have people who go through what I went through, which is, 
you know, get to adulthood without knowing that people like me exist at all. And I think that on its own, like a generation of that takes up so much misinformation and it takes up so much fear of people who don't know any other trans people who don't know like, you know, anything about us. Um, and it also empowers so many people who are coming out now to, you know, not retreat into our communities as much. Um, which isn't necessarily negative, and I'm not I'm not trying to talk bad about retreating into our communities. I will advocate it to some people, but I think it's important to always have both. Yeah. Um, I think I, like, 80 to 90% of people in my life I didn't speak to after the very first time I saw them after coming out. So I lost an enormous amount of people. And I went through this process of constantly being surprised by being like, I thought that person would be really accepting and they're really not. I thought this person would be really unaccepting and they really are accepting. And um, and it was kind of a little bit of a process of mourning to me. It was kind of like all of my emotions were about, about that were kind of like as if they were in another language. And it never occurred to me at all that it was anything to do with gender. It was just kind of like this misplaced feeling. And then once I started testing, applying gender to it, it fit so well and made a lot of sense. Just getting the words, having the language to describe that. Uh, yeah, being Realising that there were gender variant people and people who, uh, who transitioned their genders or had variant genders and non-binary genders and such the like. What would you say to somebody like that, a young person who's finding it very difficult to really find their place in the world? I advocate for what I will sometimes call that radical honesty. And I think that every secret you keep, um, you never know how much it harms you. You never know how important it might be to be able to communicate it. And you think that things are impossible to let out. Um, and often if you look at them from a different angle, they can be quite easy to let out. And being able to just verbalise things that are happening to you and just be truthful and be able to open that stuff up is like one of the most important things you'll ever, ever learn in your life. Thanks for listening. This interview was recorded on the lands of the Wajak Noongar people and we pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. This oral history collection was commissioned by the State Library of Western Australia and produced by Louisa Mitchell from the Centre for Stories. Narration by Louisa Mitchell. Editing by Mason Velios. And special thanks to executive producer and interviewer Rita Alfred Cigar.